Jesus. We ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Holy Spirit, come. Fill this room. God, I ask that you would unlock your word. That you would unlock your heart to us. Father, we thank you for this gift that you've given the church. This glorious gift called the revelation of Jesus Christ. We ask for help. Bridging an unbridgeable gap. God, we ask for help. All of your glory. All of your transcendence. The vastness of who you are. Yet you humble yourself. To reveal yourself to us as a man that we might know you. That we might know what you're like. I ask... For this book, this book that you're so jealous for, the zeal of your heart and your passion to be known, represented in a book, the revelation of your Son, I ask for you to help us. Give us grace. Give us grace this afternoon and all the days of our life. Give us grace to connect with this book. Give us help. Father, I ask... For you to open the eyes of our understanding, that the eyes of our understanding might be enlightened. God, I ask that you would strike us with the urgency of the hour, that you would fill us with the revelation of the nearness of your coming. For you are coming. The King of Kings, you are coming. I ask that you would help us to be ready for the hour of your coming. Help us to be ready. God, we love you. We love you. We love your leadership. Your leadership is perfect. Give us grace to follow your lead. God, I ask for, throughout this room, for those that are new to this subject, I ask for peace in the heart. God, I ask for urgency, but I ask for peace in the heart. Let a spirit of peace fill the room. Peter prayed that we would be found in peace at your coming. Let us be found in peace. Let us have settled hearts. God, I ask that you would settle the unrest in our souls. Give us peace. that comes with encounter. God, I ask for help for every one of us to grow in this area. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hopefully everyone got a set of notes. If... Uh, how many of you have never been to a One Thing conference before? How many of you, this is your first time here? Wait a minute. I, I need, can you humor me? Just stand. If this is your first time at a One Thing conference, just go ahead and stand. Wow. Welcome. It's good to have you here. We are honored. This is our, this is our joy. It's our honor. It's our privilege. To be able to host you and receive you. Wow. What a uh, first seminar to go to. <laughs> oh boy. I mean, me. <laughs> God bless you. No, we, uh, I'm glad you're here. For those of you that do not know me, which now is uh, most of you. Uh, my name is David Slyker. I'm one of the senior leaders at the IHOP Missions Base. I help oversee our staff 
and uh, as well as uh, the broader family, the IHOP family, which uh, is our uh, Foreigner Christian Fellowship, our Sunday morning uh, service. And uh, But mainly, besides doing that, the two things that I do that really are my passion is uh, I'm an intercessor. I uh, help give leadership to the prayer room. And I, my zeal, my heart is to build the place of prayer. Psalm 132, my zeal is to build a resting place for the Lord, the spirit of the Lord to dwell. And so I love the prayer room. I've been there all conference. I run the prayer room at the conference. And so I invite you to check it out if you have not. Um, I, I do what I do because I love prayer. I love prayer. And so I'm an intercessor, first and foremost. Secondly, I'm a teacher at the Bible school. And the primary subject uh, that I teach actually is Bible. Not uh, End times is the secondary subject I preach, though it's one of my main classes. But uh, I teach uh, New Testament, Old Testament survey. I teach the minor prophets. And then the other class that I teach is the book of Revelation. I have a real passion for this book. I have a real zeal for it. It's, uh, it is my favorite book in the entire Bible, the book of Revelation. I just want to, uh, before we dive into these notes, I just want to recommend a couple of resources to you. Um, a couple of them being, I wrote a book, for those that are new in the subject, to the end times, it's called End Times Simplified. Um, it's, uh, it's a book that I wrote, I actually um, got about a couple chapters in and the Lord convicted me. Because I was, I was writing, but I was writing with just kind of my usual writing style, and the Lord convicted me on this issue. And I don't want to speak to the truth of this. There's no Bible verse that's going to back up what I'm saying, so don't go and tell the other Bible, the, the end time writer, what I'm saying to you. I'm just telling you what the, what the, what I heard from the Lord. But this is not gospel. But, but what the Lord told me is that nobody writes an end times book for an 18 year old. Mostly, and again, that's a general statement. That's not, specific. But in general, nobody writes end times books for 18 year olds. They write end times books for one another. And as one who has studied, given many, many, many hours to the study of the end times, many hours, I've read many resources. I, uh, I've read many, recommend hardly any. I don't, it's, it's the most popular question I'm asked. I've been teaching the end times for years. And, uh, there's, there's a top 10 list of questions that I won't go through, but the top question I'm asked Every time I teach on the subject is, what resources do you recommend? And I recommend very few because uh, I disagree with most. And uh, But I agree with parts and I disagree with parts. There's very few resources that I agree with comprehensively. And most of the resources that I've read and studied are resources that were written for me. <laughs> they were written for other theologians, other scholars, and other guys that are studying the subject. The, the, the Most of the end times resources that are out there are written as polemics, or they're written as uh, arguments that are subtle arguments for their point to insulate themselves from the guys that believe the other stuff. And if you've studied the end times, you know what I'm talking about. But uh, the big point is, rarely does an author write an end times book for an 18-year-old. And so I got convicted, you know, partway in. I had to throw away everything I was doing, put it all in the trash, and start from scratch. And so this book, End Time Simplified, is written for an 18-year-old. It's written so that anybody can understand it. Because uh, this subject, the end times, it's very intimidating. But it's not supposed to be. A surprising portion of Scripture and a surprising portion 
of apostolic writing in the New Testament is devoted to this subject. And it's devoted to this subject because it was meant for you to understand. It was not meant for you to be intimidated by and to hope that somebody else can understand it and translate. It was meant for you. The key, I'm kind of talking about chapter 1 right now, but the key to unlocking the end times is the same key to unlocking the Word of God. It's prayer and fasting. It's not intellect. Anyone can dive into these verses. You have to connect with the God that wrote them, though. You have to. If you don't connect with the God that wrote this book, you can't connect to any of it, not just the end times. Every subject in the Bible is hard if you don't connect to the God that wrote it. And so if you connect to the Lord in prayer and fasting, you can unlock these scriptures over time. And so, uh, and so this book... Lays, a, it's, lays some things out, but mostly it's for courage to spend the rest of your life on this subject. And then a, a second resource I want to recommend to you, it's the Biblical Foundations of Eschatology. These are my course notes from the class that I teach at FSM. It's, it's one of our core classes. So if you're coming to IHOP, don't buy this because you'll, you'll have to when you take my class. Everyone that comes to IHOP has to take my class. So do not buy this. Uh, only buy this if you're not coming to IHOP or if you have a friend that's... that's uh, interested in the subject, the, these, uh, these notes are a little bit more comprehensive and systematic than even my book. Like, for example, I've got about 25 pages on the second coming in this, in this resource. And so uh, it's an outline form, but I wrote it similar to a book. And so it could, can be a helpful resource to you. Just wanted to throw those out there. They're in the bookstore. Good. Now that that's out of the way, let, I want to recommend the book of Revelation, (laughs) as the ultimate resource. If you don't get a single one of my resources, get two. Get the book of Revelation and get David Pawson's When Jesus Returns. If you don't don't ever buy my anything, which I don't care, I really don't, but but you should buy When Jesus Returns. It's really good. And the book of Revelation, buy that too. It's a great book. Book of Revelation. Just a couple of uh, thoughts on it before we dive into the notes. Then again, I'm spending about 45 minutes on the book of Revelation, which if, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, what you, what you know that what I'm doing is insanity. It's just absolutely insane. Only a person that's not right in the head would try to teach the book of Revelation in about 45 minutes, just, just so we're clear on where we stand with me. I tried to uh, teach the course. We, you know, at FSM, we do, uh, our, our sessions are three hours with breaks. And so, you know, we do about 10 to 12 sessions a semester, and I look to teach the book of Revelation in 12 sessions, 10 to 12 sessions. I tried to go line by line, not possible. Even in 30 hours of teaching, you can't get through the book line by line, not in 30 hours. This is a book that you must be willing to devote a lifetime to study. And the reason that you'll want to devote a lifetime to study it is because of the title itself. It is not the book of Revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is about Jesus. It's not about time charts. It's not about order of events. It's not about when does this happen and when... And those things are helpful, but the book itself is about a man. And when we remember that this book is about a man, it instantly will change our posture. It's not a a hobby fact-finding kind of a thing where with kind of a passing interest in the end times is kind of a neat subject to go after. We kind of want to dig out cool information. 
has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the man. The book of Revelation, it's about Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 describes it. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ given to Jesus by the Father, by which Jesus then gives it to an angel to give to John the Apostle. And John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation, regardless of what many modern scholars are beginning to say. This is, this is John the Apostle. He wrote it. And he wrote it, the reason that people are wondering, you know, did John write it? Did John not write it? Is because the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation are actually very different in grammar, language. In terms of parallel ideas and thoughts, they're very similar. But the language and the grammar of the word choices are so different that many wonder if a different John wrote the book of Revelation. I just want to give you a minute on what John went through when he was writing the book of Revelation. Here's what he did not do. John did not go, okay, chapter 1 down. Now, what do I want to say in chapter 2? I think I want to talk to the churches. And I'm going to talk on the theme of overcoming. So that they can overcome. I care about the churches. Okay, that's out of the way. What do we do now for chapter 4? Let's talk about the throne room. What do you think, writer? I agree, Apostle John. Let's talk about the throne room. John didn't do that. That's not how he wrote the book of Revelation. Do you want to know how the book, the book of Revelation was written? An angel says to John, write this. Okay. Don't write that. All right. Don't change a word or you're cursed. Okay. That's how John wrote the book of Revelation. It begins with a blessing for those that hear, listen, and obey its words. There's a blessing on your life Right in the first chapter, knit to studying this book. If you give yourself in time and passion to study this book, the Lord Himself speaks a promise through the Holy Spirit, a promise and a blessing on your life. If you hear these words and obey, if you take the book of Revelation seriously and study it, it ends with a promise of a curse on anyone who changes the words of the book. There's a curse. So the angel's telling him to write. The angel's telling him not to write. He gets done. The angel says, now change a word and you're cursed. John's look, John looks at his guy who writes for him and says, don't change a word. Copy it, but don't change anything. John, the grammar is terrible. You are a fisherman. <laughs> I know. Just leave it be. Trust me. Because the, the gospel of John was written by John and team. Most people don't think about that. It was written by John and team. Because John is writing the gospel late in his life as an evangelist looking to communicate something to the church about Jesus. And so he's very careful in the construction of his words and ideas. He is thinking through what he wants to communicate because at the time the gospel of John was written, there were three other gospels detailing the the life of Jesus. And so now John is going to contribute his own version to the church as a gift to mostly to combat false theology. And so he thinks it through. He has what, uh, you know, the fancy guys call redactors. He has editors. He has guys that help him as scribes take down his thoughts and craft it in good grammar to communicate to a broad audience. On Patmos, he was in exile alone with an angel and a pen. So the grammar's not as good. I think we can forgive him. Right, okay. Oh my goodness, seven thunders, don't write that. Okay. I mean, imagine seeing Revelation 4. (laughs) You're not thinking about grammar, I promise you. When you see the throne of God and the four living creatures and the sea of glass, you won't be thinking about grammar. God, good. Me, no good. 
Oh, that's, that's mostly what will go through your mind. And it'll be your like resurrected, perfected mind. Your resurrected, perfected mind, who knows? It might automatically kick into perfect grammar, but I doubt it. It's called being fried. Oh, I mean, you could spend the next million years just on Revelation 4. Taking down the details of Revelation 4, all the details of what God allows us to see, you could spend a million years just on that chapter. And I bet you will. I bet you will. How much fun would that be? You know, it's the old, what are we going to do when we get to heaven? It sounds boring to me. How about a million years on Revelation 4? Really? That'll be exciting? Read the chapter. (laughs) Okay. Secondly, the reason that we know it's John is because the, uh, the whoever wrote it, and again, I'm saying it's John, whoever wrote it was filled, immersed. He had a mind that was filled with Scripture. When John is writing what he's seeing, he's using Old Testament language to describe it. In other words, when he sees in Revelation 19... What we know is Revelation 19. What John is seeing is Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. And so when John writes out what he's seeing, he kicks into Isaiah 63, 1 through 6 language. He uses the language of that verse to describe what he's seeing. In other words, that's his default. His default is, he goes, ah, that's Isaiah 63. And he describes it with with a little bit of a twist because he's seeing it fleshed out. In a way that that might have been slightly different than what Isaiah saw. He does this time and time again all throughout the book of Revelation. There are 300 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. 300 plus. 300 times John goes, oh, that's Ezekiel 3, Revelation 10. He goes, ah, that's Ezekiel 3, oh my goodness. And he uses the language of Ezekiel 3 to flesh out what he's seeing. How many of you could do that? If the Lord gave you a vision, how many of you could automatically connect it to an Old Testament passage and use the language of that passage to flesh out what you're seeing? Anybody, raise your hand. So There was a lady in the back that raised her hand. Write something for me and, and uh, teach me your ways. Because I'm not quite there yet. He's on an island... He is filled with Old Testament scripture. This is the whoever wrote the book of Revelation had spent his life memorizing, teaching, explaining, and living in the Old Testament. Years. Of course, I believe John wrote this when he was 90 plus years old. After 60 years of prayer and fasting. After 60 years of prayer and fasting, the Lord gives him a vision that would change the earth. I mean, how many of you are willing to sign up for 60 years of hiddenness, prayer, and fasting for one vision that will shake the nations. Sign me up for that. If I have no impact in my life, sign me up for a life of hiddenness, prayer, and fasting by which one vision comes and everything's changed. A couple other quick thoughts on why John wrote it um, or why I think John wrote it. I already talked about the parallels. And then finally, his, uh, the first and second century disciples of John and the disciples of John's disciples all credit the book of Revelation to him. Church history credits this book to John. So four quick reasons why I think it was John the Apostle. The book, surprisingly, is a book about mercy as much as it's about justice. It's a book about mercy. 
It's a book about the loyal love of God for people, not just his people, not just the bride. It's a book about the loyal love of God for human beings. That's the stunning feature of this book. To me, the number one thing that continually shocks me about the book of Revelation is that it depicts how far God will go to save men from themselves. That's what the book is partially about, not fully. It is about justice. It is about divine justice. But people get tripped up by the divine justice and see the book of Revelation as depicting a God that's mad at humans and wanting and eager to punish them. Of course, that could be farthest from the case. The book is not about how mad God is. It's about how bad human beings are and the lengths God has to go to save them from themselves, ultimately to judge them. Which we'll be talking a little bit more about in the next session. The next session I'm focusing on the second coming. Which again, doing the second coming in 45 minutes is almost as insane as doing the book of Revelation in 45 minutes. But really my goal is to give you enough to give you courage to study those two subjects for the rest of your life. I want to study this book the rest of my life. I want to give myself to it. And the big challenge for many of you is to find the God of love in this book. It's why people avoid the book of Revelation and it's why they in general avoid the Old Testament. Because they've categorized love in a mushy, sentimental, western kind of a way, not understanding that the loyal love of the Lord goes deeper than their western definition, and the expression of it will stun your heart forever. The way God, the way God expresses love in this book will sustain your love for Him forever, as you keep going back to it. It's stunning. It's a book about mercy. It's a book about how evil men are and the lengths that God must go to save them from themselves. Mostly, now I'm an A, the book of Revelation is the prayer manual for the persecuted church. It's mostly a prayer manual. To know this book and to immerse yourself in this book is to prepare yourself to stand before the greatest storm in history in the place of prayer. This book... Well, I mean, it's just, God wanted to make it easy for, for us. I mean, I just, I'm just, I'm more and more and more stunned with the, with what an amazing leader God is. He's such a good leader of bad followers. And the way that he leads bad followers is he gets us into a groove by which we in diligence and obedience do the same things over and over again in the place of prayer, learning his heart so that he incrementally teaches us how to stand in the place of pressure and trial. The essence of Christianity for the believer, not, not, I'm not talking about you know salvation and I'm not, I'm not talking about theology, I'm just for a minute... Life in God is mostly about not quitting. If we cannot quit and stay diligent, you'll be surprised at the leadership of God when trouble comes, if you cannot quit. But, the, but here's the difficulty. The difficulty is there are so many reasons and excuses to quit. To quit Christianity, to quit prayer, to quit believing, to quit hoping. We were just in a prayer meeting. I just led the, the noon prayer meeting. So if I seem a little funny, it's because it, I just, we were just leaving that intercession time. Now, at the end of the time, how many, was anybody in there for that when we, when we did a little healing time? 
That to me is the epitome. I mean, it's, uh, it's my oversimplistic personal theology of healing. My, here's my theology of healing. God wants to. That's my theology of healing. And, but here's where we get tripped up. We get tripped up. This seems like a tangent, but I promise you it isn't. We get tripped up when God doesn't heal. If God wants to, why won't he? And what we begin to imagine over time with disappointment is that we want healing more than God does. And offense with God is most often birthed out of the illusion that we want something more than God does. In terms of healing, in terms of miracles, signs and wonders, in terms of, in terms of all that comes with life in the kingdom, when we begin to imagine that we want it more than God does, because the delay surely means that God wants it more, we begin to lose heart, we begin to lose hope. I assure you, God wants healing more than you do. But what He wants more than healing is a people that don't quit. Those that are willing to ask, and when he does not answer immediately, ask again, I I promise you, God is interested in cultivating that. Again, my my oversimplistic theology of healing, I ask, and if speedy justice, Luke 18, does not break in, the next day I ask again. Because I believe what the word says about Jesus, and I believe he's going to do what he wants to do, and if both those things are true, then I just keep asking. It's not, it's not even personal with me. I don't need emotion. I don't need to get worked up. I don't need to stir up my faith. I just go, God, it's who you are. Heal. Nothing? Okay. I'm going to ask again. Heal. Nothing? Okay. Here I go again. Heal. I'm not quitting. I'm going to do it until you, I want to ask until you do it. Dave, you've been asking God for 20 years. So? What are you telling me? He wants to heal. Psalm 103, Romans 8. He's going to heal me. I'll give you... You didn't think this was a healing seminar. I'll give you point number two. Point number two. Even if you get healed today, you still die. Right? I mean, what a disappointment. Lazarus got raised from the dead... And he still died. (laughs) Unless I'm missing something. You don't get healed of old age. It's part of life under a curse. And yet the zeal of the Lord is to heal. And you know how that zeal is fully manifest? The zeal is fully manifest by something called a resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 8. We're groaning for the fullness of healing, which is a resurrected body. Fully healed. And yet we can contend today for a little bit of what's coming in full tomorrow. We can ask today for a little bit. And again, if he doesn't give it to us, we ask again. He wants to do it. I believe it. But I'm not just living for the healing of the body today. I'm living for the fullness of that promise tomorrow when I'm alive with him in a new body on a new earth. That's what I'm living. That's really what I'm living for. I'm living for another place. I'm living for another day. And I'm living eagerly anticipating that day, though I want to touch what he can give me and what, and what we can have today. I want both. I want all, I want the fullness of tomorrow, and yet I want the fullness of what I can have today. I want both, and so I'll contend for both. The great thing about the book of Revelation and the end times is that it is about the subject of Jesus' leadership. It's about his leadership. 
Because I've studied the end times, I'm confident in his leadership. Because I'm confident in his leadership, I don't get thrown off when there's a delay in the answer. Do I believe that God can heal? Yes. Do I believe that God can preserve my life? Yes. But do I believe that they're going to be martyrs at the end of the age? Revelation 17, 6. There will be many martyrs at the end of the age. Many will die for their faith. And yet God can deliver and save and preserve. Both will happen. Both. And both will be of God. And both will be an expression of a victorious church. Did you know that? The, ex- the fullest expression of the victorious church, which is in the book of Revelation, is the church moving in power and anointing and glory, dying along the way. And God says, that's victorious. Revelation 12, 11, that's victorious. This is awesome. They're glorifying my name and power unto the death. This is great. Another side subject. It's really not. For the, for the Western church, the Beatitudes stop at peacemaker. That's where the Beatitudes stop. If you're familiar with, Revel- with uh, Matthew 5. In other words, the fullest definition of peacemaker is Romans 8. The sons of God that, that, uh, that, that bring peace. Jesus, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. And of course, again, the fullest expression of that is after we die, resurrected bodies, partnering as a bride to bring peace to the earth under his leadership. Jesus as king of the earth, bringing peace to the chaos, restoring the earth. That's what Jesus is going to do. We're going to partner with him. Another way to say peacemaker is revival. The church is contending for revival. The highest goal of many in the church is revival. Expressed in signs and wonders, expressed in healing, expressed in power. Really, it's Jesus bringing peace in situations. Peace to bodies, peace to demonized people, peace to relational chaos. It's Jesus bringing peace. We call it revival. And for the church, the Beatitudes stop there. We're fighting for revival, but for Jesus, we're blessed after revival. The Beatitudes end with persecution and martyrdom. The highest place a believer can get to in victory before Jesus is persecution and martyrdom. Jesus said, when you come into that place, you're blessed. Great will your joy be, Jesus said in Matthew 5. Great will your joy be when you're persecuted in that day because you've touched God. And Jesus said, Jesus said it in the book of John. He said, they hate me. They hate the light. When you touch something and express something that the world hates, persecution follows. The book of Revelation is about victory, but it's God's way to victory, not the general kind of Western way to victory, which is blessing with no cost. The church comes into victory in the book of Revelation, but it costs them everything. But victory, according to Revelation 12, is when it costs you everything, you don't care. You love not your life, even unto the death. It cost me everything, but I I love it. Jesus said, great will your joy be in that day. You touch God, you touch revival. Acts 17, the city's turned upside down. When revival comes and the city's turned upside down, when the book of Revelation is breaking forth on the earth and all the positive and negative aspects are happening, the city's turned upside down. Do you know what happens? It's societal chaos. It's economic disruption. It's the guy that was selling the silver idols suddenly he's out of business because everybody's worshiping Jesus. You put those guys out of business as a, with revival, 
They come after you with persecution. Jesus said, great will your joy be on that day. Why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this to give you context for the great joy of studying the book of Revelation. It's a great, one of my greatest joys is studying this book. But it takes a paradigm shift to enjoy it. I told somebody last night, I said, man, I think differently. I just think differently. I want to love not my life even unto the death. Now, if the thought of martyrdom is enjoyable to you, then you'll love the book of Revelation. (laughs) Welcome, those of you that are at your first one thing. Glad you're here. If the thought of living life Jesus style, his way with his desires and his delight, if that thrills you, then the book of Revelation will be the most thrilling book you can read. Victory, the glory of God breaking in, the the God rescuing men from themselves and judging those, vindicating the church by judging darkness with intense judgment, but it's in response to intense expressions of sin. The book of Revelation, I love it. It is awesome. And it's a prayer manual. It's This book is to train the church in how to pray. The book itself personifies the long-awaited promise of the great reversal of Daniel 7, verses 9 through 28. The great reversal. The great reversal is a phrase that that really is it's the promise of the word that God would take unworthy world leaders, cast them down, and in their place, Daniel 7, 27, in their place set the lowly ones, the weak ones, the persecuted ones, the beggarly, the weak, and the ones that he calls worthy, the saints of the Most High. The ones who reflected a God that most of the world hates. God's going to stun the earth by casting down the unworthy leaders and establishing as the leaders of the earth the meek ones, the lowly ones, the foolish and the weak things to put shame to the wise. Those that did it God's way in a way that seemed foolish. Prayer and fasting is the most foolish way to live and yet God is going to set into a high place those that lived weak before men. It's glorious. Those who lived according to selfish ambition. Those who lived according to selfish and vain pursuits. Those that lived building a kingdom for today without concern for God or fellow man. God is going to take the unworthy ones and he's going to cast them down. But the ones who live for tomorrow, the ones who have no friendship with this world, James 4.4, the ones who do not love the things of this world, 1 John 2.15, Those whose hearts are given to him to love what he loves and are despised by men because of it. How many of you would say that you give yourself to regular prayer and fasting? Raise your hand. Now, how many of you that are raising your hand, keep them up for a second, leave them up if nobody gets you. (laughs) I mean, I don't mean that in the martyr sense, but I mean like people are constantly like, what are you doing? Can't you do something better with your time? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. There's a weak way to live before the Lord. It is weak. I don't need to go down that road. But the book of Revelation is about the vindication of the Lord by which he takes those who are loyal to him even in trouble and trial and establishes them as his bride. How does this happen? How does this great reversal happen? 
The book of Revelation, particularly 5.8, but many other verses, this reversal happens through prayers ascending to the throne. That's how it happens. It doesn't happen because the church has activism, though activism is good. It doesn't happen because the church does A, B, and C. It doesn't happen because of gun soup and, and, uh, and food stored in the back shelter. It happens when saints are praying. You know, people read the book of Revelation and they go, does this mean I need guns and soup? No, it means you need to pray like crazy. You can store lots of guns and soup. It will be seized and confiscated. The best is prayer that causes manna to appear from heaven. That's the best. Am I saying that man is going to appear from heaven? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it would be neat. Better than the Campbell's soup you got stored in the back in the water jug. Better is water from a rock. So, to interpret the book differently is to remove the power and the message of the book for believers who are under great pressure, seeking to be victorious in the hour of the greatest trial in history, yet will overcome. They'll overcome... Through abandonment. For the, for the guys in the room that, you know, study the end times and were hoping to, to uh, you know, wield a sword or shoot a gun and kill Antichrist people, Revelation 13 is actually pretty clear not to do that. Said so just, just a little tip off. It's really clear. The way to victory is not killing Antichrist army guys. The uh, way to victory is really different. Those that live by the sword will die by the sword in that day. But here is the patience of the saints. Revelation 13. Let's just look at it. It's right before a, a really critical passage. It's Revelation 13:10. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed by the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And he goes on in Revelation 14. Verse 12, to expand on that thought, here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. In other words, Revelation 14 tells us why we don't do guns and and, uh, swords. Because Revelation 14 says, the patience and the faith of the saints is personified in those who kept the commandments of God, who lived righteous in the height of unrighteousness, who lived holy in the time of greatest unholiness in history. They held the line on holiness. They held the line on righteousness. God says, here's the patience. In patience, they held the line. In patience, they would not budge on holiness. In patience, they would not compromise. But wanted to be blameless in my sight. They kept my commandments, and in the faith of Jesus, what did they do? The very next verse, and I mean, it's really the theme of Revelation 10 through 14, they evangelized the earth. In other words, the ones who were killing them, they testified Jesus to. And I'll tell you, I'll just give you a hint, if you're you're a student of the book of Revelation, the most significant verse in the entire book, I'll give it to you right now. The most, and there's lots. I mean, there are so many. To say this statement has an audacity that surely angels are just, they just went like this, like, oh, Sliker. I mean, there are some significant verses in this book, but I'm going to tell you what I think is the most significant passage in the entire book. It's Revelation 14, 13. The most significant verse in the entire book. Why? Because a voice speaks from heaven and the Holy Spirit says yes to it. 
It's a twofold witness in this verse. It's a really important promise. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write! He's been having angels tell him what to write and what not to write. This time it's a voice from heaven. It's God himself. God says, write this. It's really important to me. He does it again, Revelation 21, but this is really critical right here. He says, write this. This is really important for my church to understand. It's really important that they know this. Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. The Holy Spirit says, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. It's the most significant, it's one of the most significant promises in the Bible. I think it's the most significant verse in the whole book because the purpose of the book is to give you courage to stand and hold the line and not compromise. And that verse is the promise that's meant to fuel your soul by which you would stand. The Lord says to the church and the Spirit punctuates it. The Lord says, if you hold the line on my commands, if you hold the line on faith, you know, it's Luke 18, when Jesus returns, will he find faith on the earth? Revelation 14, 13 says, yes, he will find faith on the earth. He will find a body of believers who will hold the line. He will find a company, a faithful church, fiery, wholehearted and obedient, fully abandoned to him, no interest in the world who says yes to holiness and yes to righteousness. He will find faith. And therefore, in that time, when you die, you're blessed. Why? I'm just going to throw a little idea out for you. You can go search it out on your own. You're blessed in context to the parable of Jesus when he talks about the four soils. He talks about the good soil in which the word takes root. He says that those who have good soil in which the word takes root, they will see a 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold return on their labors. In other words, there are different measures of return on the labor of the believer. According to their obedience. That might be a new thought to many of you. In the book of Revelation, Revelation 14, the events of Revelation 13 are portrayed as so difficult, so intense, that Revelation 14, those that stand for righteousness in that time, stand and keep the commandments of God and stand in faith and confidence. In other words, Faith in Jesus means they believe he is who he is and they believe that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. It's back to the healing discussion. Why? It's a little verse in Revelation 13 talking about the Antichrist. It says that the Antichrist will blaspheme God and blaspheme the saints in heaven. What does that mean? It means that he's mocking believers. Antichrist is using his unbelievably powerful voice to do one thing in Revelation 13, to disrupt hearts of believers, to disrupt those that are holding the line for righteousness, to get them to to shrink back, to get them to stumble. He's using all of his resource to strike at them, Revelation 12, and he's using his voice to strike at their hearts, to blaspheme their God, to mock their God, and to blaspheme the martyrs who had passed on. He's going to do everything in his power to fill the church with doubt. So much so that Jesus says, will the Son of Man find faith when he comes? He's blaspheming. He's speaking lies. 
You pray for the guy, he doesn't get healed. The Antichrist will say something along the lines of, that, again, this is not an exact quote, just using an example. He'll say something along the lines of, where is your God now? Did God really say he would heal? Is your God kind? Is your God good? He will be a mocker. He will be a slanderer and he will be a deceiver and a liar and he will attack the character of God and he will do so that you might faint and lose heart and lose hope. But the one who stands and says, I believe, Song of Solomon, chapter 5. The one who stands and says, I believe that he's good. Even if the circumstances tell me different, even if life is hard, whether good or bad, blessed be his name. Blessed be his name, whether much or little. Blessed be his name, whether rich or poor. Blessed be his name, whether my life is going great or going bad. The circumstances of my life do not change the testimony of who he is. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And the testimony of Jesus prophesied, church, he is good. And he loves his church. And he's going to come and rescue his bride from great darkness. He will do what he said he would do. It's why in Revelation 19 it says the one who breaks in to rescue the church is called faithful and true. He says faithful and true as the first name he wants you to know about. In other words, you can believe me. I followed through. His name in Revelation 19.11 is follow through. His name in Revelation 19.11 is keeps his promise, keeps his word. We have to believe he is who he says he is. And we have to believe he'll do what he says he'll do. And we start today. We don't start in the darkest time of history. We don't work the muscle of faith and confidence in the nature and the character of Jesus in the darkest time of history. It doesn't start then. You build the muscle of confidence in the leadership of the Lord today by studying who He is. Let's stand. You have the notes. Lots of detail on the notes. The front page of the notes is uh, my website where there's resources available. These notes will be on there. The next session notes will be on there. There's lots of other resources. And then the following pages, it's the ihop.org website address, tons of resources on there as well. We just, we want to do whatever we can to get resources to the hungry. If you want them, we'll get them to you somehow. And if you're taking what I'm saying seriously, you must give yourself for the rest of your life to the study of the character and the nature and the person of Jesus. In this book, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19.11, he's faithful and true. Revelation 14.13, and if you believe it, you'll be blessed. You'll get the full reward. If you stand, if you hold the line, if you resist the deception of the enemy, and you say yes to the truth of the word, if you stand on a rock that's unchangeable, your circumstances will change, but Jesus will not, and he will follow through on his promise. I will stand on that rock even unto death. Though they slay me, I will trust him. I will believe that he is good. They can take whatever they want from me, but they cannot take from me my confidence that he is good and that his love endures forever and that his desire is to have mercy on me. Micah 7, that he loves mercy 
He loves mercy. They can say what he, they want about the character of Jesus in the book of Revelation. My Bible says that he loves mercy. Even in the midst of judgment, he loves mercy. We can stand on that to the end. Close your eyes. Let's lift our hands. I'm going to pray for all of us. I'm not even going to do an altar call. We all need help in this area. God, fill us with grace to stand until the end. Give us, with, give us grace to stand until the end. Give us grace to stand until the end. We stand on the promise of your word. You who are called faithful and true, fill us with the knowledge of you. Fill our hearts, our spirit, our mind. God, I ask that you would come even now. Refresh us in confidence in the truth of your word. Fill our minds with this hope that you will do what you said you will do. God, we do not live or give ourselves to the prosperity of today. We give ourselves for the million times prosperity of tomorrow with you in the heavenly realms. God, I ask, particularly in this room, for those that are struggling in this area, faith, unbelief, deception, I rebuke the lies of the enemy right now in Jesus' name. I bind his lies. I rebuke the enemy right now in Jesus' name, the deceiver, the blasphemer, the mocker. I rebuke his lies. God, I ask that you would equip this room and fill them with a grace to stand, to stand tomorrow and to stand in the days and the hour to come. God, I pray what I prayed at the beginning. Let peace fill the heart. Let peace fill the heart. God, for the one in the room that's going through the divorce, peace. For the one in the room that's struggling with sexual addiction, peace. For the one in the room that's struggling with shame, self-hatred, peace to the heart. I speak peace. Your sin is not greater than His grace and power to deliver you. Your weakness is not greater than His strength. I speak peace in the name of Jesus to hearts that are in turmoil right now. I speak peace in the name of Jesus to the many whose finances are in turmoil. Peace in the name of Jesus. Your deliverer is coming. Let's just take a minute. Let's do that. If you have a specific issue you need peace in, and you need a breakthrough of peace, I'm not talking about a change of circumstance. I'm talking about peace in the heart. Peace in the heart is worth more than a million dollars in the bank. You have a circumstance that you, it's causing you great turmoil and you can't, you, you just are not finding your way out. I want you to lift your hand right now all over the room. Lift your hand. Let's look around. You might have to raise both hands because there's a, let's look around. Turn around or look in front of you and just everyone in the room, just lay hands on these ones. You don't even have to ask them. I mean, if you want to tell them what the issue is, feel free, but it does not matter. The prayer is for peace. I want to say,